Okay. There we go. We'll act like none of that happened. But the elephant in the room is this. Because I know someone's going to mention this to me. It always happens. Because we, our attendance, you know, it fluctuates. But it has increasingly been trending upward over the last year. And you see yourselves, you people that just came in late, how easy was it to find a seat? Not easy. Like, where are we going to sit? So someone's going to mention to me after service, because it happens every Sunday. What are we going to do about this attendance thing? Like, we're running out of room. And then I always say to Don, I say, Don, write the million-dollar check, and we will, we will build a building. He's come real close, but Amy has not yet let it, let it happen. Not let it yet happen. But, um, I know, Amy, I'm trying. I'm trying. I just, if you, yeah, if you want more people, we've got to build something. Okay? No, but seriously, I'm not unaware. Our leadership's not unaware. It's wonderful to have this many people in our, like, in the sanctuary. But we are limited. Like, you, we just can't break down walls and make it bigger. So just know, you keep coming, keep struggling to find a seat, and at some point God's going to open a door we can't foresee. Okay? Deal? Deal. Great. Okay. Or just keep getting here early, because you know we don't start on time. All right. Um, with that said, we are continuing our, uh, our journey in the book of Psalms, and we're jumping into Psalm 17 today. This is a bit longer than some of the psalms we've recently hit, but man, it's going to have something to say to you and me today on this Sunday. I want to go ahead and give you, not something I often do, but I want to give you the outline of the psalm before we ever read it. Here's the outline. So this whole thing, this prayer of David is going to start with him describing this as a prayer of a righteous person. And then we're going to see this back and forth in the middle of the psalm, a prayer for protection. And then there's going to be a description of the wicked, a prayer for deliverance, a description of the wicked. And then verse 15 is going to just end with this hope, this hope of God's presence. Okay? It's going to end with this hope of God's presence. And that's going to have something to say to us right here on this Sunday. Let's take a look. Psalm 17, if you have a Bible with you, you can follow along. I am uh, reading in the New International Version. Or you can just listen along as we go. We'll pick up with verse 1. Hear me, Lord, my plea is just. Listen to my cry, hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart and though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people have tried to bribe me, I've kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love. You who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who are out to destroy me. For my mortal enemies who surround me. Well, they close up their callous hearts and their mouths. They speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down. They now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry to pray, uh, for prey. Like a fierce lion crouching in cover. Rise up, Lord. Confront them. Break them down. With your sword, rescue me from the wicked. But your hands save me from such people, Lord. 
from those of this world whose reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it, and may there be leftovers for their little ones. As for me, I will be vindicated, and I will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Psalm Psalm 17, just a rich psalm here. And this psalm does what so many of the other psalms do that we have already seen up to this point, Psalm 1 through 16. This psalm describes two kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked. And so to unpack and really um, understand what David's praying here, I want to just investigate those two groups of people and what David has to say about those two groups of people. The righteous, David sees himself in that camp, and the wicked. This psalm has something to say about the wicked and the righteous. And I think by understanding those two groups of people, we understand the rich depth of what David's praying right here. So let's start with the wicked. He begins this description of the wicked in verse 9 through 12. We'll take a look at it. I'm going to highlight, we're going to highlight some pieces of those verses right there. So right out of the gate in his first description in verse 9, these are people who are out to destroy me, who surround me. So these are people who are lying, deceiving, full of violence, and in some way are trying to hurt David. Now, you can imagine commentators are trying to figure out where in David's life was this happening. Well, there were a lot of different parts of David's life where this was happening. So we really don't know exactly when this was happening in David's life. When exactly would he have penned the prayer or at least got outside of the moment of danger and thought back and wrote the prayer he prayed in that moment. But what we do know is the wicked, they're trying to hurt him. They're surrounding him. And to make sure to get the point across... He makes sure to use, he uses an image that is very powerful, and we see it in other places. It's in verse 12, where he describes them like a lion hungry for prey, fierce lion crouching in cover. These, these who he described as wicked, who are surrounding him, they're like lions. And, and they're not going to be satisfied until they've consumed David. They've taken everything they want from David. They've hurt David. They've got revenge on David. They've done something to David to damage him. They're like lions pursuing their prey. This is an image that the, that the psalmist like David and then another psalmist also in Psalm 10. Take a look at how, uh, how the psalms have already picked up the image of the lion to describe the wicked. Take a look. Psalm 7. Psalm 7, verse 1 and 2. We're just going to take a look quickly. Verse 2. They will tear me apart. Like a lion, rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. They're literally going to tear my life apart. What is whole and good, they will tear apart. And then in Psalm 10, here's another image uh, the psalmist uses. In verse 9, uh, we'll pick up verse 8 and we'll grab it. Verse 9, the wicked man lies in wait near the villages like a lion in cover. He lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. The lion is looking for the moment to pounce and to destroy. Now, interestingly, just fast forward a thousand years into that first century when the gospel has gone, gone into the world and people are believing on Christ. And then these young Christians are trying to learn how to live in the world. And there's no doubt that these young Christians are facing persecution from non-believers. No doubt that's happening. And they're, they're facing it economically, physically, emotionally. But when Peter 
gets to the end of his letter, his first letter, the Apostle Peter. He looks at their situation and he sees that the ultimate threat to every Christian is not a person who might bring uh, harm to you. Take your life, take your job, steal, abuse you. That's not the great threat to any Christian. The Apostle Peter, a man who would have known the Psalms, he picks up on this image. He picks up on the image that David liked to use so often in the Psalms. Look at what David, uh, the Apostle Peter writes to these Christians. I think it has application for us, right? 1 Peter 5 eight. Be alert and of sober mind your enemy, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There's a quick reminder, Christian. You always have an enemy in wait, prowling around. That's the devil. And he wants to tear apart your life. Side note here, just to remember, always remember this too. When our lives are being torn apart, we often, we often are facing some type of temptation. The thing about temptation and sin is we never fully see how damaging it really is. We often think our lives are being put back together as we move into sin. That's the deception. Satan usually doesn't literally walk into a house and shoot you with a Glock. That's not how it works. He'll bring something onto a screen. He'll bring a bad relationship into your life. He'll put a substance in front of you when you are at your low moment. Like, that's usually how this works. But just never forget, there's an enemy, and he's always crouching. Now, for David, this is these wicked people that are around him. And again, we don't know who they are, but we know they're trying to destroy David, his life, and hurt him in some substantial way. Now, he goes on. We'll just pick up. Let's go back into Psalm, Psalm 17, verse 10. It's an interesting description here. They close up their callous hearts. They speak with arrogance. Now, what, what we don't know, unless we get behind the English, is... The English, is, the, the Hebrew is not nearly as clear as close up their callous heart. Here's the literal translation out of the Hebrew. It's an idiom. Literally, callous heart, the translation there is they close up their own fat. That's what the Hebrew says is they close up their fat. Like these are fat people and they, they just close up their fat within themselves. Like I don't even know how to work the image. I mean, I got ways of describing that, but... I don't know if any of them are appropriate, but like, so what an odd thing to say, but it's an idiom. It's, it's something in the Hebrew to describe their pride and their self-consumption and their selfishness. One commentator describes it this way. The fat of the wicked signifies their greedy, self-loving, and insensitive nature. Prosperity and success are associated with a rebellious spirit symbolized by fatness. Fatness is a way of describing you're full of yourself. And you're full of all your prosperity and comfort. You're all about you. And these wicked people who are seeking to destroy David, they're all about them. They're all about getting what they want, when they want it, being satisfied with what the world can give them. Which, interestingly... It's the next thing David will say about these wicked people. 
Now remember, a wicked person has no room in their life for God. Because God says He's the center of the world. A wicked person says, this world is all about me. So never forget this before we jump into that last, this last description of the wicked. Psalm 10. I just don't want, I want to make sure we keep it in view. If we just went just a few psalms back, we got this description of the wicked. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there are no room for God. Why would there be no room for God? Because their mind is full of all their fat. They're just fat with themselves. And so, David ends the description of Psalm 17 as he works these descriptions in the midst of his prayers for deliverance. He ends with this description of the wicked in verse 14. Check this out. He describes them as those of this world whose reward is in this life. You want pleasure? You can have it. Fill your bellies up with it. And then you will die and be left a shell of a person. Oh, you can go get all you want in this life, but this life has an expiration date. With God, there is no expiration date. There is eternal pleasure forevermore. That's how, he, that's how David ended Psalm 16. And so these are people that are consumed with themselves. They want nothing of God. They want only what they want. And they are consumed with their own passions and desires. It's all about them. They're all about number one. That's the wicked. They get the reward in this life because this is what they're about. All right. The wicked. But David's not the wicked. This is a very important part to understand this whole psalm. David's not the wicked. He's not the one with lies just spewing from his mouth. He's not trying to hurt other people. Not intentionally. This is not the trajectory of his life. Even when he sins, his heart is not completely turned away from God. This is not David. And so when David begins this psalm, out of the gate, he wants to make a contrast. God, I am not like them. Now, he's not perfect, but I'm not like them. Notice how he started the psalm. Just, I, again, I just want to take excerpts from the first five verses. Because I think in some ways it kind of hits us odd. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. You'll find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. I've kept myself from the ways of the violent. My steps have not held to you. Uh, my steps have held to your paths. This is a way of David saying, I'm not like those who are trying to destroy me. I am, even in my flaws, I am pursuing you. Pastor, scholar, Timothy Keller, he says this about those first five verses. And it sure does sound like David's describing perfection. That's not what David's doing. Here's how Tim Keller note, uh, describes these five verses. David's not claiming to be sinless as a human. He's denying that he is, as, uh, he is corrupt as a ruler. He's not lied to his people. He's not taken bribes. He's being falsely accused. But his conscience is clear. It's not clear because he knows he's perfect. He knows, though, he is not like the wicked. And why would, how could he stand there and say, I'm not like the wicked? Because David knows he has a relationship with God. And out of the gate, as he begins to pray for deliverance, like, God, like, deliver me from these evil people, he leans in on something very, very fundamental about who God is. Check this out. Verse 9, he says this. 
He says, show me your wonders. And then he leans into this word, your great love. Now, again, the English doesn't help us here, but the Hebrew sure does. The Hebrew word there, the Hebrew word that the NIV is translating, your great love, it's the word hesed. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's often translated steadfast love, mercy, unfailing love. It is one of the most used descriptions of who God is. Hesed. David, if you remember, in the midst of another cry for help back in Psalm 13, verse 5, David again leaned in to God's hesed. Take a look. Psalm 13, 5. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. This unfailing love is fundamental to who God is. It means that God is stable when everything isn't. Even when you are not, He is. One, one scholar defines it this way. Of this definition, we read it several uh, months ago when we were in Psalm 13. God binds Himself to act towards His people He is utterly faithful to His own self-commitment. To put it another way, our hope that God will love us to the utmost and forever is not founded on our ability to keep His commandments, but rather it's founded on God's ability to keep being God. When God when God makes a promise, when He locks in on His people, He's not a fickle God. He's not the God of the Romans. He's not the God of the Greeks. He's not the God of Apple or Amazon or Google. He does not shift with the profit margins. He is consistent. It is hesed. And so you could take that to the bank. So here's the cool thing. It's like when you know God doesn't give up on you, you then begin to understand the relationship with you, that you have with God. So you can call out to God, like, would you please help me? And God, I know that I am, I, I am your child. And like, so David has a way of describing this. Like, he doesn't say, I am your child. He says this. This is how he describes his relationship with God. Verse 8. After leaning into God's hesed in verse 7, he, it gets him to a place where he can say, I know I'm the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The short story of that is the apple of the eye. This is another phrase in the Hebrew. We've picked it up in English as well. Literally, God cares. You're valuable in his sight. And you can go hide under his wing like a mom like a, mom, like a mom who will cover her young and protect them at all costs. God will protect and he'll hold on. So like David, the reason David can go to God when he's in trouble is because he knows God's consistent even when I'm not. And I know he actually cares. Even when I don't feel like it. And so David goes to God knowing this relationship sticks. And in the end, in the end, what David wants is God's presence. That's where he wants this whole thing to land. In the end, even if everyone would destroy him, he knows that in the end, even if he loses his life, he knows this thing ends well for all of God's people. He says it this way in verse 15. One of my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the Psalms. As for me, I will be vindicated. And what does he say? I'm going to see your face. When I awake, I'm going to be satisfied with your likeness. I'm going to be satisfied by seeing you face to face. David knows no matter what happens, no matter what happens, he's the apple of God's eye because of God's hesed. And when it all comes to the end, he's going to be satisfied 
in God's presence. By the way, do you know who will not be satisfied in God's presence? It will be the wicked. Because the wicked are all about themselves. They want nothing to do with God's face. But for David, I'm going to be satisfied in your presence. This whole seeing God face to face, it's like rooted in David's character. It's something that, that God has put within him and he's written in other places. I'm just going to pick one, Psalm 11. If we just go back to a psalm we've already looked at. David does, says this near the end of Psalm 11. For the right, Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. The upright will see his face. What a great promise. But the underbelly of this promise is this. None of us are righteous. None of us are righteous. None of you are upright. I'm not upright. None of you say the right thing all the time. None of you always think the right thoughts. None of you have pure eyes. So, so that kind of leaves us in a conundrum. Love the promise, but how do you get it? This is where the gospel lands in Psalm 17. You know who has been upright? You know who has always done what is good and just? Fully trusting in the Father? Who is actually satisfied with the presence of God the Father from eternity? God the Son. God the Son came to earth, lived a perfect life, died for your sins and mine. The wrath we deserved, He took. So He took on, it was imputed to Him. Our sin imputed, put on Him, He suffered the wrath. And in, on the other side of that, anyone who believes and repents, well... By grace, God then imputes all that righteousness, all that perfection, it's put on us. And so when we go into God's presence, God the Father sees God the Son in all of His perfection. That's really good news. You know the reason, you know the reason we struggle to see that as good news? It isn't because the good news isn't good news. It's because our eyesight is still quite damaged from sin still indwelling in us. It's a problem with my eyes, not the gospel. It's like I am just keep asking, God, can you help me see it more and more? Because I know it's there, but man, I, I, like I'm foggy in seeing the clarity of your treasure. Man, I need it. I can't get God's face without Jesus. But when you get Jesus, you do get His face. The last chapter in the Bible. Last chapter in the Bible. Of all the things that God could have given to John in a vision. And of all the things that could have been written in the last chapter of the Bible. That last chapter opens with this hope. And I, no doubt, it's hyperlinked all the way back to Psalm 17. Check it out. Revelation 22, verse 3 through 4. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. We might add, and we will be fully satisfied. Man, don't you yearn for that? That's Psalm 17. Takes us all the way to Jesus. So let's make some application. Like, let's get it on the ground to where we live today. Okay? Now, there are a lot of places I think we could go. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, we're, we are jiving. Mind meld. Tess is running the slides. I didn't want you to go forward because I want to I lean into where we're going, okay? 
Sometimes that slide goes up and it like, it breaks all the fun. Like I want to like really, I want to surprise you. I got to get you there. So there's some places we could go here. I think, I think one place we could go is, this is a psalm you and I can pray. Like literally, like what do I pray? Turn to Psalm 17 when you're struggling and pray this prayer for the devil to leave you. Pray that prayer. That's an enemy that prowls around you. Pray Psalm 17. It's a great prayer. But that's not where I want to go. I think Psalm 17 reveals the double-mindedness of our heart. I think it reveals the duplicity that we often feel in everyday life. Okay, here's what I mean. Now we go to the slide. It really, I think, reveals which direction our heart is going. So here are two questions. Are we becoming more like the wicked, people who seek satisfaction in this world only? Remember how David described them, whose reward is in this life. Or are we becoming more like David? People who seek satisfaction in the presence of God. People that might be able to say, with David, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Which way is your heart moving? Seriously. And if you sit there in your mind where no one else can hear, and you think that you are moving purely in that second option, this will not be a church you like for long. None of you are moving purely in the direction of wanting only God and only God's presence. Here's what I'm trying to get at. If we're honest, we read Psalm 17 and we say, man, I got a little bit of the wicked in me too. There's a war. Do you feel it? I mean, I'm just, when I read Psalm 17, I feel a war inside of me. Because there's a part of me that still wants to be satisfied with this world and this world only. Where I get what I want when I want it because I'm number one. Something I struggle with every day. And I imagine if you're honest, you're probably right there too. Like you probably are there where you often think of yourself and no one else. But then there's that other part of you as a Christian. You're like, man, but I want God. Like, I often want to want God. Like, man, there's like this battle between my flesh and the Holy Spirit. And it's like waging war every day. And some days, man, I'm on a spiritual high. I am kicking with God. Like, we are, we are, we are one. And then there are other days you're like, I want nothing to do with God. Like, this is a war. And sometimes you probably think the war shows that you're not a good Christian. No, it just shows you're a Christian. That's what that shows. Here's what Paul wrote about this. I love it. I love that the Apostle Paul actually gave language to what you and I, I think, often feel. Galatians 5, 17-18. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. The spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. Now you've got to catch this last one. So that you are not to do whatever you want. Why would that be? Because so much of our muscle memory is about me and getting what I want. It's still so much rooted in my flesh. And so Paul is training these young Christians. Part of beating the war is you don't always do what you want. 
even sometimes when what you want is nothing, there's nothing bad about what you might want. There is nothing fundamentally, like I mean, at a fundamental level, there's nothing wrong with five helpings of dessert. Nothing. There's nothing wrong. Your belly will tell you there's something wrong, but there is nothing wrong with five servings. Until you get to the point where you become gluttonous, right? And you have no self-control. The problem isn't in the five servings. The problem is you have no self-control. And when you have no self-control with peanut M&M's, like this is just, this is all very hypothetical. Like when you don't have self-control with peanut M&M's, when someone makes you angry and you want to lash out with your words, guess what? You've just trained your body over here to get what it wants when it wants so that when your emotions want something over here, you do the exact same thing. You just go for it. And so Paul says, don't always do what you want. That is training you in the Spirit. And so where I land with Psalm 17 in real life is I want to be the person who wants God's presence. And I want to be satisfied with that. What Paul teaches me is part of learning that, part of training in that direction, is sometimes I have to tell myself, no. That's your next step. That's where I want to land it. Here's what I think all of us can do this week. Fast from something this week and remember your ultimate satisfaction and joy is in God's presence. Fast from something. No matter matter what, I mean, pick something. If you're on social media all the time, Take an hour and don't be on social media. If you love watching TV, don't watch TV. If you like getting the last word, don't get the last word. And yes, the person who is wrong will be perceived as right. I'm looking over here. I'm looking right over here. I'm looking. I know. Jenny, it's going to be a hard one. I know. Like, fast from something. The goal here is not that fasting makes you holy. Fasting teaches me and you to say no to ourselves so that we learn how to live more and more in the Spirit. So say no to something. I don't know what that is. You pick. But say no to something. Fast from something. And remember this week when you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I saying no to to such a good thing? Because you're learning. You're learning and training for a goal that's coming in a, probably a very short uh, and, not, and, not, and not long. Over the span of human history, most of us have, what, another 50, 60 years? You who are younger, maybe you got 70. But there's an eternity of satisfaction on the other end of that. I want to train for that. Not just for this world. So say no. And you and I can become more and more like the end of Psalm 17. That's the goal. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the word and how it challenges us. It rips us up. It transforms us. It convicts us. It tears. It cuts. And in the end, makes us more like Jesus. We know that you are not going to give up on us because of your hesed. Your covenant love will not let go. And so may we live into the reality that you actually like us. And that you are faithful even when we're not. And that there is satisfaction fully in your presence. Help us to get there. We want to be a people of the Word, implanted with the Word, transformed by the Word. So that in a hundred years, for all of us, we will be enjoying 
life in a way we never knew on earth. So we pray you would help us with that because we're going to need it. And we do need it. We pray all in him who took our sin on the cross and was vindicated in the resurrection, now ascended, reigning, looking for the day where he is reigning in the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus, Savior, Lord, and King. Together we say, Amen.